please note, part of the thematic focus of this research draws comparison between eating disorders and living in an abusive relationship. This is Barry Murphy. Welcome back to the Bodywise podcast. In this episode, I speak with Connor Strobel from the University of Chicago about gender salience in eating disorder recovery. Welcome, Connor. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thank you. My name is Connor Strobel. I'm a Harper Schmidt Fellow in the Society of Fellows at the University of Chicago, and I generally play in, in sociology. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And today we're talking about your research article, The Shadow That Hovered Over Gender Salience in Eating Disorder Recovery. Can you tell us what is meant by gender salience and also what led you to research this area? Sure. So maybe I'll sort of answer it in reverse. When I was an undergraduate, I was a resident assistant. So I usually kind of put on community events in my dormitory and things like that. And I remember someone who lived in my dormitory, former wrestler, ended up developing an eating disorder and sort of in chatting with him, he often thought, oh, no, I can't, I, I couldn't have an eating disorder. That's a women's health issue. And that sort of stuck with me in sort of a different way, thinking of sort of time in high school sports and, and the like. And as I was kind of going on to graduate school, uh, sort of, I was trying to look more at the academic research on it. And there hadn't really been uh, a lot about sort of the gender dimensions of eating disorders, particularly as it, re- as it relates to men. And especially where that seemed like such a, at least for him, a, a huge inhibition in sort of seeking treatment and care, it really said that, well, in that case, you know, his gender identity um, was a really sort of prominent barrier to thinking like, oh, this is something he should do could do or you know feel comfortable doing and that's where the identity salience comes in often coming from areas of psychology that is you know depending on what situation you're in what social space certain aspects of who you are might become more prominent for better or for worse if you're around the kitchen table with your family right the fact that oh i'm part of this family might become you know sort of uh bring to the fore a little bit more conversely you know if um you know, someone says, you know, something mean or or sort of bigoted on the count of a person's race. Well, clearly that like that person's racial identity becomes all the more prominent to, to them. Um, and so salience is important because it because we we have hold all these sort of different social identities that it tells us sort of which ties sort of matter in a given situation, sort of which cues, how should we sort of understand the world, what what we're a part of, what we have rights and access to, to do and to doing, sort of when does that, when are we allowed to do those things? And so that's sort of, I saw, you know, well, again, going back to that story, you know, his gender salience was quite high. There's something, um, you know, he saw, he saw eating disorders, through a gendered lens. And, and it's because of that, he thought, you know, this isn't something he could have, and then therefore wasn't something he should get treatment for. And can you talk a little bit about uh, social factors in recovery, in, including the online space? Sure. So one of the important things about eating disorders, I think, compared to a lot of other ones, and maybe I'll give something of a vulgar example. 
you know, if you're in the you're in the kitchen and you're cutting up onions and you cut your finger, you know, unless you have maybe some sort of clotting disorder, you probably, you know, maybe you wash it, put an antiseptic, maybe even a Band-Aid if you're feeling up to it. But you probably don't put too much thought to it as to, you know, how you cutting your finger, what that says about you as a person or sort of the con, the sort of whatever social context were involved that, you know, made you sort of cut your finger other than maybe you were distracted. Conversely, eating disorders are like some other, some other psychological disorders are far more complicated in that we know that there are social pressures that, that might push on some individuals in, in, in their course of developing an eating disorder. So too, then we know that that also would affect people in their recovery as well. If, if there's if there's sort of social pressures that sort of got them there, it, it reasonably holds that when you kind of have to deal with those social pressures, if you're really going to try and kind of get out from under it. And your paper talks about the, the field of sociology not having kept up with the developments in eating disorders. Can you bring us through a little bit of that, please? Sure. So... So sociology has been a little bit slow for a couple sort of some of the sort of disciplinary reasons. And oftentimes there's a lot of people working really hard to say, oh, this is psychology and this is sociology and, and sort of some of these strange nerd habits of theirs. Within sociology, looking at things like eating disorders used to be kind of a bread and butter topic insofar as sort of people in the maybe 70, 80 years ago, names like Anselm Strauss or Irving Goffman were very interested in sort of the, the, the totalizing force of stigma, how it shapes our behavior, our sense of self-worth, our actions. Also looked at uh, medical institutions, including psychiatric and treatment institutions, and sort of how those work to um, condition sort of new behaviors and things like that. So you would think that, oh, there's a long history of things where we could readily sort of draw from where that sociology would have been pretty uh, pretty well prepared to sort of talk about the social dimensions of eating disorders in recovery. Unfortunately, some of the sort of subfields that might kind of be closer to looking at this really focused on interesting, but sort of does not germane topics to this. So medical sociology, for example, is often interested in sort of medical institutions, medical practices, and then the sort of the development of medical knowledge. It's less so about sort of the, the, the qualitative characteristics of sort of individuals recovery in sort of group treatments and things like that. So they just kind of moved into different areas, in part because the social psychological dimensions of human life are things that sociology is sort of a general is it sort of a general passing has been sort of less interested in and move more towards sort of a quantitative direction more sort of more aggregating direction by and large um, th- but at the same time there is sort of a, an interesting sort of opportunity at the present because whether that's because of interest in things like big data or things like that, sociology has been quite interested in looking at online spaces or sort of online sources of information. And so that was one of the, this at an intellectual level, one of the reasons why I thought, oh, if we look at online recovery spaces, whether it's on social media or eating disorder specific ones, trying to figure out how do we deal with the sort of digital methods because it's a little bit different than just talking to someone face to face that could be useful for the discipline but also at the same time because there's there hadn't really been anything done on, on 
the gender dimensions of eating disorder recovery. For a first study, I thought it might be a little, it, it could be risky for me to say sit in a recovery group and just kind of see how people talk. I thought me sort of sitting there might uh, run through risk of having a negative influence on people either speaking honestly or sort of speaking as they as they truly feel. So in looking at things that people publicly post and sort of in trying to make sense of that environment, I thought, okay, my sort of passive approach to collecting data would, wouldn't run the risk of sort of engendering people to be on guard. And it's the, the analysis you took, it was, was it both Tumblr posts and some pro recovery websites, if I have that correct? Yeah. And so the nice thing about both of those, you know, Tumblr still going strong, even though we often see things like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, all these other things in the news. Now it seems somewhat dated. Uh, One of the, the advantages of Tumblr as a platform is that because, you know, if they have a, if a person has a public profile and they post a, you know, a text post or an image or a video, uh, a GIF, they can ascribe at, you know, multiple hashtags to that. And so it allows them the continuity of having sort of a, almost like a digital blog or sort of micro blog to sort of track their journey, but also allows people to sort of search for things like that. That's interesting. So people can kind of tell a long story sort of a, and create a narrative. Also, you know, forging a community of people who are talking about similar things. And what I saw was, well, over time, people often would comment on, you know, the same profiles, the same micro blogs, even though they, they wouldn't necessarily have kind of say the same locked in friends like you would on a Facebook account. Conversely, uh, the reason I want, I was interested in the eating disorder recovery website specifically was because, well, if you're a public profile on Tumblr, regardless of sort of what another person's motivation or interest is, anyone can sort of view that. So in some ways, you're a little bit more public in, in, a, in a Tumblr space uh, than you would if you were sort of in, a, in sort of a self-selection of going to a website that's just geared towards eating disorder recovery. So I was also interested to kind of see if there was actually any meaningful difference in how people talked um, on these two kinds of websites. And your sample ranges from young people to those up into their 50s. You mentioned support, no shaming or ridicule from from other posters as well. Yeah, and that was one of the one of the things that was sort of very warming to sort of see is doing the research. Obviously, you know, this is a hard topic and it's certainly, you know, even harder for people um, working their way through eating disorders and eating disorder recovery. But in these spaces, people were incredibly supportive of each other in their journeys. And one of the things that was fascinating about it is, you know, I found that people generally use sort of one of four narratives, and we can certainly talk about sort of what makes up each one of them. And they really, and they stuck with it. But when someone would say that, you know, they had they had a hard day, there's something about their family life that, um, that sort of really spun them out, or they've really felt, you know, that they might relapse. Other people sort of really quick to sort of support them and support them on their on their own terms, using the sort of the language and the logic of the person who is having a hard time. And that's a really sort of sophisticated way of engaging with people. And that's not to say, you know, there aren't, you know, a ton of different sort of dark or hostile spaces on the web for eating disorders. Certainly, many of the social media platforms themselves have a huge degree of culpability and in taking society in a very bad direction with respect to body or um, body image and variety of other characteristics. 
And then there are also some communities. There's been some interesting research on sort of pro-ana or pro-anorexic communities online that are um, quite quite dark and tragic. Um, but, but at least in these spaces, it was quite interesting in that you also didn't see kind of people from the outside sort of invading or polluting this kind of sacred space of, of healing. So you didn't see folks from, to take that example, the pro-anorexia group were never coming in to sort of invade or, you know, troll or whatever online acronym you might use. Yeah, so let's talk about the, the four types of recovery in art of your research on COVID-19. So ecological, sickened, abused, and warrior. Yeah, so one of the things I should say, make a distinction um, at the beginning is when I'm talking about narratives, they're a little bit different than a story. You know, if I told you sort of, you know, how I woke up this morning, right, you know, in sort of, you know, had coffee, brushed my teeth, this and that. Well, it might be hard to sort of figure out what the significance of that might be, if there's any significance at all. Um, a narrative, by contrast, is interested in two things in particular. One, the sort of the, the enduring structure of, of sort of our of our stories, sort of what kind of what is the through line between each sort of story we tell. So you could imagine a person recovering will have good days and bad days, and hopefully uh, more of the former than the latter. But you know, one bad day is and this is isn't going to necessarily characterize or help you understand the totality of their recovery. And so by looking at narratives, I can understand, okay, how is their approach to recovery if it is changing over time? Right. How are they sort of, how are they, you know, because it's, it's a, it's a long game. So how are they going about their recovery and sort of how is that changing? And then similarly, I'm interested in sort of who are the characters in this, in this narrative that they're playing? Obviously there's the person recovering, but then trying to understand what are the ways in which they're characterizing their eating disorder or their relationship to it? Um, and how does that also sort of help understand their ability to recover within this sort of structure that they're building. And the reason why I think narratives are helpful for understanding the ways in which we might act, because it helps us give us a sense of what the, what lies ahead in the future, what's on the horizon. You could imagine that, think of a sort of a rather silly example, if you're in a room and you, um, and you don't see any doors to exit, and, and you think, oh, there are only four square walls, well, you might might take you a long time to figure out how to get out compared to if you spotted the door right away, right? And so in, in that sense, you know, eventually you might stumble your way out of the room. It could, even though you couldn't see the door because it's pitch black or what, what have you. Um, but if you're able to sort of see the horizon, you're able to, um, that gives you much more, much, it's much more plausible that people are going to kind of go in that direction because they see it as real. They see it as an actual possibility. And so because of that, that's sort of the way I was trying to get at, you know, how do they think, how do they think about their recovery and things like that? And I did track to see, you know, and we can talk about this later, certainly, you know, to see if there's any relationship between the narratives that they chose and the likelihood that they relapsed. Um, and there was some, there was some important variations there. Um, so just to quickly, Barry described kind of the four narratives, the ecological narrative uh, was really cool in that individuals who use this narrative would often liken their body using a uh, to like an ecosystem using a variety of sort of natural metaphors and motifs often saying things like you know when they ended up developing an eating disorder there was 
they went about it and they sort of they went off balance. They started focusing on, say, one aspect of their health to an extreme to the detriment of other things. And so the important the importance of sort of the recovery was to try and find some some symbiotic or homeostatic relationship between the other parts of their body, right? So it would not just be their weight or their musculature or their, you know, strength or their energy. It's about sort of thinking about how can I be healthy holistically? And they, so, they, so those folks would use a variety of sort of pictures of nature and talking about their eating disorder recovery, a variety of sort of things like that. Now, the, one of the advantages to sort of a narrative in that way is, well, if you're increasingly just trying to get towards balance, it allows you one sort of a, a pretty good idea of how to sort of get there. Okay, I need to make little tweaks here in my lifestyle to make sure that, okay, I'm not too um, preoccupied or doing some things that might sort of push me into a certain direction, over-exercising, for example. So it's, it's easy to kind of make a few tweaks to try and get a balance that makes sense. Similarly, if you have a hard day, well, that doesn't mean that sort of your whole idea about recovery was built on a house of cards, so to speak. It's like, okay, you sort of, the pendulum swung a little too far in one direction, and now we just kind of constantly have to recalibrate, and we're going to get closer and closer to where we want be want to be. And so with that, folks using the ecological narrative didn't seem as uh, thrown into sort of an existential state if there was, you know, the, if they had a hard day or they really felt like they had a, a, you know, a stretch where they felt like they might relapse. They knew that, okay, I just have to think about how can I make these adjustments. And similarly, ecological narrative, folks using ecological narratives were less likely uh, to report, self-report re relapsing in, in some variation. The abuse narrative was one of the sadder ones. And often, and so with folks using the abuse narrative, and only, again, so with the ecological, the ecological abuse and second narrative, only women use those narratives. Men only use the warrior narrative. With the abuse narrative, the women using that narrative would refer to their eating disorder as if it was like an abusive partner, an abusive spouse, using a variety of sort of telling a lot of stories as if it was an instance of sort of domestic violence. And obviously, stories about domestic violence in themselves are awful, but with relate with relate as it relates to eating disorders. One of the things that made it really hard for people using an abuse narrative to recover is that they felt like they constantly had to be on guard or that their eating disorder could sort of lash out at them at any minute. So th there's, there seemed to be sort of a, a pessimism at the ability to recover because they thought that it was, you know, when an eating disorder pressure or pressure to relapsing might come, it was a sort of overwhelming force. They, there's a degree of sort of helplessness. And now they taught it how they thought about that. And in that sense, it was, you know, somewhat the narrative structure, you know, compared to an ecological narrative, which is just kind of a slowly increasing slope. Here it's like, oh, you might have had a good stretch. You know, then the abusive partner comes in, you know, beats you up and you, and you sort of go right back down. And so that was, you know, that was really one of the, the sadder ones to see. The second narrative uh, used so, in some ways, similar to the ecological narrative, some sort of quasi-biological reference, but, you know, reference thought of the eating disorder and like in somewhat pathological terms, the idea that, you know, this is, you know, I'm sick and that in so doing that they could treat it not in a medical way, but they could think about it is something that's natural 
And, and the important aspect of why it's natural is because, you know, we all get sick. Certainly in the past, you know, four years, we were all, many of us were getting sick a lot, uh, especially uh, out here in the States. And so the thing about the sickened narrative is like, well, you can have a really great stretch of being, you know, being healthier, feeling like you're striking a balance. You might not have, you know, things that, you know, sort of trigger you or into feeling uh, like you might relapse or pressures to relapse. But nonetheless, you know, it could happen at any point. You can sort in the progress you made, you can sort of lose. So while, you know, there's sort of a lot of ebb and flow, almost kind of like a cardiogram, if you were to think about, you know, sort of a narrative arc to it, the important aspect of it or how it appro- how it affected individual psyches was, well, we all get sick sometimes. And so even though, you know, I, you know, the, per- the person using that narrative said, oh, I might, I might've felt really close to relapsing or, you know, maybe I did, but, be- but they realized that, hey, this one instance isn't going to define my recovery. And so it wasn't, it wasn't as effective as say the ecological narrative because it wasn't constantly, it wasn't routinely figuring out how to make sort of these small tweaks in calibrate. You sort of had to make sort of one big correction when it happened, but nonetheless, it was more effective than the second because they had their approach to it wasn't cynical or pessim- not cynical, pessimistic or fatalistic in the same way. The warrior narrative, that one's by, by its title might be the easiest to sort of make sense of. Um, women also use this one as well. With the warrior narrative, uh, they often refer to their relationship with their eating disorder as if they were doing battle. It's sort of like uh, it, whether you're a sentry constantly having to be on guard. The idea was that you as an individual, your recovery is exemplified as, as if you were being under attack. You had to be constantly vigilant because you didn't know, you know, when you know, this, you know, conniving sort of um, disorder was going to sort of come and pressure you. You thought, okay, well, there, I've tried to make some corrections in my life, but, you know, who knows when I might feel triggered. There's only so much you can do to sort of prevent those things. And so because of that, if you constantly have to sort of be vigilant, it takes on this sort of, sit, you know, episodic sitcom-like thing. It's like, okay, you had a good stretch, but then you, you know, the second you sort of wake up, you have to be hypervigilant again. There's sort of no ultimate horizon of I'm going to be good. It's like I have to constantly think about it, constantly be vigilant. And so the the warrior narrative was not particularly conducive for for recovery because they con if you constantly are preoccupied about you you know uh, eating disorders or the risk of relapse, right? That's certainly not the end goal for you know for anyone. Uh, ideally, you get to a point where you have you can think about your you know your your past eating disorder and things that might trigger that less and less because you sort of resumed the degree of normalcy, and that's something that the episodic nature of the warrior narrative didn't really allow people to do. I think what you've said really brings to light how hidden parts of recovery can be, and how how difficult it is for the person as well, and. Because sometimes other people around them can ask or can make comments like, oh, you're looking really well and kind of get a sense of recovery primarily on the physical side, which, as we know, isn't often the full picture of what the person is going through or any sort of measure of their recovery either. And I think the final piece is just the sheer amount of time it takes someone to recover to because of all this process. Absolutely. And 
on these platforms, the people who I study, the people whose narratives I sort of tracked and sort of built built out, you know, were, were on there months and years sort of working on it. And, you know, and, and um, happily for many of the people who had been on there for a considerable amount of time, took on much more of a generally supportive role of others, while some people, you know, were still kind of working through kind of getting to a better spot. And some of that's I think really think because of the narrative that they use, but because of how long and sort of how hidden aspects of recovery can be, that's one of the concerns I had when I was when I went through the data and so well, men are only using the warrior narrative, and you can think well, thinking of you know constantly being on guard and protecting and violence and vigilance and being and often calling them referring to themselves like a soldier. There's a lot of sort of stereotypically sort of masculine qualities and sort of how they describe their relationship. Um, and that's in contrast to, say, like the ecological narrative where, you know, people would, uh, in addition to sort of talking about sort of mother nature, would use a variety of sort of um, maternal images about sort of care and um, like sort of caregiving and balance and things like that. Similarly, you know, the the idea of the warrior in you know, sort of the masculine imagery is in direct contrast, let's say, the abuse narrative, right? The idea that, because in, in the abuse narrative, they would sometimes say, he's out to get me. They describe their eating disorder, you know, as, as if it was a male domestic partner. And so it makes sense to me that the that men did not adopt other eating disorders in this study because they, they didn't speak to who they were. They were and, and given how rich the language was and the stories they told with a variety of sort of um, sort of highly gendered words, and I can go through some more of those if it would be helpful, that if the only thing that, you know, the only way of thinking about their eating disorder um, was sort of through a, a highly gendered lens, well, then if men only have access to one of those narratives and that narrative is not particularly conducive for recovery, then we have an issue, especially because you know, his, you know, within the media, even, like, even clinically eating disorders often being thought of as sort of a women's health issue, a lot of the ideas about sort of recovery overwhelmingly are designed around the like the the causes and, and sort of challenges that women with eating disorders face. Um, in the, in Clearly, the, the ideas about sort of feminine beauty can't really to help understand sort of why someone who might identify or describe themselves or find affinity to a highly masculine stereotypes and images. That doesn't help us understand how those men develop eating disorders and certainly how they might recover for them. So that that's sort of gone to sort of where I am at now, working with some other people um, to try and figure out sort of how can we sort of get men to think about their narratives and, and, or the relationship with eating, dis eating disorders differently. Because there was nothing about these platforms that pressured people to talk about their eating disorder in any particular way. Um, and so that was that was really important because, as I mentioned before, people, if, you know, they're having a hard time or they've, you know, they were, they were venting or whatever it was, everyone would just respond to them on their own terms. They could, they could ostensibly speak about it however they wanted. And that was perfectly in sort of whatever phraseology they want, and that was perfectly acceptable. And so if that's the case, it's not as though 
there was some social pressure on these platforms to say, oh, men had to talk a certain way. And clearly, because women used a variety of their narratives, there was no sort of pressure that said, oh, women had to only talk about their recovery in a certain way or using certain narratives. So given that there's not sort of this big rule in the sky about how men or women have to talk about their eating disorders, is how can we how can we find alternative ways of understanding recovery that can be responsive to who these people are, the identities they hold, what matters to them? Yeah, warrior, I suppose, in, it brings to mind in one sense, it's kind of almost the person has a protective shield, but then is also not afraid to go into battle. And, and if you think of kind of, say, sports teams or kind of popular culture and, and how we grow up and who we identify with, usually in those kind of modes, there's always kind of a warrior character or a warrior mm-hmm. figure. And I'm wondering... If we thought for a moment, say the internet did not exist or the online space did not did not exist, if you or sociology were to maybe look at people's, I don't know, say, let's say poems or diaries, or I know certainly some people have written and performed plays about their eating disorders, mm-hmm. is that, you know, if might there be similar findings? It's probably very hard to say. I, th- I think that's fair, you know, it, to the extent that it allows people sort of to I, de- I develop a sort of sense of self and sort of an idea about their recovery that can be enduring, right? So I just as sort of how a person had one diary entry about their eating disorder might not always be the most reliable indicator of how things are going to go for the whole course of the recovery. But if you took a, a diary, you could certainly map it out in a similar way. One of the advantages of sort of the online space is the people independent of going in person to a treatment facility or support group or things like that, there is this sort of social community of people who felt supported. And given this sort of pressure globally to adopt these versions of telemedicine or remote medicine and therapies and supports, I'm really trying to think through that space um, and sort of what would it mean for those to be conducive for individuals recovering from eating disorders. Uh, When I was initially, before I started the study, and I was trying to figure out how might I go about doing this in person to go to different support groups um, or, or facilities, I found that so many of them, even if there wasn't a rule that they had to, that they're only geared towards women, overwhelmingly would be filled exclusively with women. And there was a few I sort of sat around and I and I talked to some men who never picked up a, a few flyers and were, and were interested. And they said, well, they didn't feel comfortable being sort of the only person there. And, the, and they, they thought there is a certain sort of gender dimension to it. Whereas online, you know, even though those spaces were occupied more by women, which is r- reasonable considering the, uh, the sort of proportion of people who have eating disorders, it allowed them to sort of you know, dip their toe in water or begin to engage in the community that they observe the ways in which it was supportive of people, regardless of sort of who they were. And I think that there's really, there's an interesting opportunity online to really uh, improve and scale eating disorder uh, support and recovery services. And one of your quotes then is is part of the study's title. So the shadow that hovered, hovered over my life. And there are also mentions of the eating disorder voice and how some of this made it difficult to engage say, in show, social activities and relationships. And then another quote is, person always have to be on guard, which you've touched on, touched on. And then also 
having to surrender, I think that really gives an insight of how difficult it is to live with an eating disorder. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, we, how we come to sort of understand, you know, the, you know, the challenges that we have in our life, you know, really affects our ability to engage with them and, you know, hopefully sort of, you know, overcome and surmount those challenges. And so, you know, even though those very quick quotes or categorizations sort of really could, hopefully can paint a picture of like, well, it makes sense if, you know, if you're seeing is, you know, something of a, a shadow and the, you know, the changing of the weather versus, you know, something where, you know, you constantly, you know, are at sort of mortal risk, like as if you were, you know, in a war in the trenches of something, you know, can really help sort of understand, you know, why it is that people are sort of in really different spots with it. And let's talk a little bit about relapse then and how this came up in your article as well. Sure. So uh, people are one of the one of the things that is was really interesting to see and really made me think that studying this uh, these online communities was really worthwhile. Is people were quite uh, candid in sort of how how they were doing with their recovery when they had good days. They, they you know they they mentioned, but they also willing you know to really get into detail about sort of when they had harder days and sort of why that is. And they didn't feel shame to say that you know I'm having a harder time with with my recovery or, you know, I really feel like, you know, I might relapse. And so with that, when I was trying to sort of make sense of if people were relapsing, some of it was often, it was quite straightforward. People said it, you know, they and, and hopefully more often than not, uh, they said, you know, uh, I relapse, either they say that the word, or they'd say there's a particular sort of behavior that they, that they, they engaged in. And, and then hopefully they said, well, you know, Kind of fe- sort of fell off the wagon, so to speak, and I'm I'm gonna you know get back up, and I'm you know things are gonna get better. Oh, and so and so sometimes they'd also sort of speak it, it, you know a little bit more euphemistically, talking about the symptom or sort of that some things approximate, or they'd say something like, "Well, the eating disorder got the best of me today," or you know that's why I've been absent for a week or so, but I, I feel like you know I've dusted myself off, or I'm in a little bit of a you know a sh- sure footing, and you know now I'm now I'm back on the platform and. I talk with folks. So, so, but it, it was quite, it was quite inspiring how forthright people were and sort of talking about how they were doing, not just in the good times, right? But I mean, not just in the bad times to kind of say, you know, because it was not this sort of vain way of like, oh, look at how much I'm struggling. It really was a way of people be, being vulnerable and, and using that vulnerability as an opportunity to build community and find sort of support. I was reading something yesterday, and I think if my memory serves, so for men, the, the last symptom to resolve tends to be like anxiety from missing a workout or compulsive exercise. But that's also a high risk for a relapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it is, uh, it's a hard thing in that, you know, what, and there's some, there's been some interesting research sort of starting up, I think at Mount Sinai um, with a, with, with some a neuroscientist named Muhammad Abdul Parvaz, where they're trying to figure out, you know, with a variety of different eating disorder uh, types, but then also kind of figure out, you know, what is the relationship either between anxiety, social anxiety, or other sort of repetitive patterning pro- or processing systems or disorders. So you could think of OCD and other um, other or sensationary things like um, like a nicotine addiction, and sort of and think of how how is it the brain 
works in sort of these sort of ways that sort of get us into these sort of kind of extreme repetition or patterning scenarios and sort of how can we, if we, what can we learn from one then and sort of the treatment regimen um, and kind of think about how can we maybe take some of the, uh, the better aspects of that to think about eating disorders given that, well, okay, if there's something that's totalizing or obsessing in a behavior, how can we make sure that they don't just kind of, you know, copy paste and put that onto a different thing? So I think we've touched on gender and do you think some of this is cultural or or how we were kind of socialized or, or a whole combination of factors, I suspect? 100%. The sort of what makes something, you know, what makes something, you know, the idea of sort of, you know, obviously most, many of the armed forces around the world now are, you know, are sort of have men and women serving in them and, and sort of growing measures for people at the, you know, the military academies or leader, generals and the like, police, police officers, there's increasing sort of parity in sort of these, you know, sort of rough and tumble kind of occupations, as you might, uh, as you might say. But nonetheless, you know, these are sort of the, the narratives themselves are far more enduring or sort of slower to change. And so, why it is that you know men think that they have to resolve their health issues as a general proposition without help more often than women is certainly a sort of a learned cultural thing about you know who is supposed to be independent who's supposed to be dependent who's supposed to be you know self-reliant and tough versus you know who who can't solve something by their own and so there are all of the, you know, cultures sort of imbued through the really cr- kind of cradle to grave of the eating disorder of sort of what, what, what pressures people and in, in sort of into developing an eating disorder. There are a ton of sort of cultural variables, some of that gender, some of that not, and then in, in surely the, the recovery from it as well. Is there anything then you're recommending for future research? Sure. So I think then one of the next things to study, and I and I wish I could have done it at scale, unfortunately, because I only went off what people sort of self-reported. And I, I, I was interested in the sort of the gender dimension, but you know, we know that there is some variation in the kinds of eating disorders people have by their race or ethnic identity as well. And so it's a you know, I think increasingly we can we can look at different aspects of identity and how they play a role in recovery. So we could look at, is there a difference in sort of whether it's uh, in in recovery by race? And we can also look at that intersectionally. So, you know, uh, do women recover, women of color recover from eating disorders differently or use, you know, certain kinds of narratives? And are those different than say, you know, white women or white men or and really trying to understand how sort of how people sit intersectionally with their recovery. So that way, as we build build out narratives in a clinical capacity that can be really responsive and resonate to people and who they are, we can really make sure that we're paying attention to the identities that matter. So that's one area. And then the second and is an area of sort of a of narrative experimentation, which is a kind of a, a, a buzzword or whatnot, uh, but it's something that uh, I, a graduate student who I've been working with at the University of Chicago named Jana Lennon, and some other folks have been working on trying to figure out, well, what would it take for uh, people to switch, to, you know, to try on different narratives? Because like I said, at least in, in this study initially, you know, the men only used one narrative. And there were a lot of sort of very gendered reasons why that was the case. Um, but even though the women used different narratives, they used all, all four of the ones we talked about earlier, they more or less stuck with the same one. And so 
for ones that were more conducive, sure, you've had something that's certainly certainly fine and reasonable. You wouldn't want them to, you know, to go to something less productive. But how could we get the person using the abuse narrative to think about, you know, come um, try on sort of the, a narrative that might be more conducive for recovery? And so we've been looking at sort of how do sort of the rules of different sort of spaces about sort of how, um, how you're allowed to talk about things. How can we how can we create spaces where people can sort of experiment with how they talk about their recovery and try and think about their recovery a little bit differently? Because um, you can, one of the perils of sometimes of hard and fast recovery spaces for eating disorders or for other things is, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, is known for having their 12-step program. And if, you know, and sort of, and you have to, and the way in which you got there, you have to have the, kind of this templated story. And if that story doesn't, res- like, doesn't resonate with, you know, your, with sort of your story with alcoholism and how you trying to ma- maintain sobriety, people have a harder time with it. And people might, you know, might make use of those recovery uh, resources less because it doesn't feel like, oh, well, this isn't, like, this isn't how it was for me. Clearly, uh, there's something with me that's not right. And we really want to try and figure out, you know, how can we create, you know, these sort of narrative templates that really make it seem like, you know, recovery is something that you can do and, and that you can, like, it's conceivable and really, like, we can get there and we can develop in a way that really kind of holds true to sort of who you are. We've done some work on the the overlap between autism and eating disorders, so... Mm-hmm. Like overall, it's still an area where a lot of work needs to be done, both, I think, in, in knowledge base, you know, trying to create a specific treatment pathway, pathway and adapting treatment. So again, you know, that might be a project someone takes on in the future, autistic people's experience, I suppose, it could be in any space, the online space or in other spaces around recovery and, and, and kind of what their narratives are and identity. Absolutely. And I can at least speak with, you know, in in the U.S., there's certainly uh, diagnostic problems by gender, uh, you know, sort of keeping to sort of yourself and sort of not being, you know, gregarious or some of these other things have made um, particularly young women underdiagnosed in some areas, in particular women of color, underdiagnosed with certain, um, with, with, with autism. And so there's, there are sort of huge variations um, in the U.S., um, on a gender dimension, as well as um, some on our sort of ra- racial or ethnic lines too, and so the fact that that's sort of steeped in the third thinking about you know is someone autistic or is that am I as an individual autistic? So, you know now we can think okay well now the sort of the gendered the gender identity factors become sort of compounded given that that autistic folks are can, uh, are in some in some cases overrepresented amongst the population with eating disorders or recovering from them. Has there been any feedback then since you've published the study? Yeah, so it, it's been uh, it's been quite uh, nice to see that the first citation that the, the article got was by a scholar uh, in an Italian journal that I had to sort of take some time to figure out how to how to translate, not knowing Italian myself. So it's always it, it's interesting to see sort of who picked it up. And you know, talking with you today, um, you know, in in, uh, in Ireland is is quite heartwarming. It has picked up um, in ways that I hadn't thought about, which I think really. I hope inspires other sociologists to kind of take on the question of of eating disorders. And that I said, well, there's something about, you know, the sort of one size fits all idea of sort of what it means to be masculine. 
particularly, you know, at least when there was one, you know, masculine narrative. And so there's been a bunch of research in sociology using the term hegemonic masculinity, whereas, you know, you have this sort of idea of sort of what the ideal man is, sort of the, you know, the, the classic sort of ho like Hollywood sort of star. And, you know, if individuals sort of don't fit that mold, you know, whether they they have more start with stereotypical feminine attributes or they just, you know, the, or sort of where they're, where they're located, you know, around the world, the, sort of what it means to be sort of masculine is different. How do you sort of make that balance in the world of trying to sort of feel like, you know, you count as being part of, you know, people who share this identity. And so hegemonic masculinity can be quite paralyzing in that if you don't really perfectly fit that mold, you you don't count, and particularly as it relates to health, or it can relate to sort of sports, or sort of like you know kids and the and the friendships they form, and things like that. And so I think uh, some folks were working with how how can we figure about how to you know let people more freely kind of navigate thinking about sort of their gender and and not be sort of so paralyzed that they you know not everyone looks like you know Cary Grant or the rock or something like that, that they nonetheless feel sort of confident in themselves. And so I think because of the number of people who are interested in sort of these sort of more like sort of big picture gender questions, I think that hopefully that inspires them to kind of look, look at here and really see what sociology can contribute to the sort of the social dimensions of eating disorders and eating disorder recovery. And then is there anything else you wish to add or maybe we didn't touch on? Not that I can think of, but I, I really appreciate the opportunity. This was a real treat. Thank you very much. Great to speak to you, Connor. Likewise. And that brings us to the end of the episode. You can find a reference to Connor's research in the episode notes. Thank you for listening.